Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Most people today have heard of the Jewish holiday called Passover, but um, they have not heard of the holiday that follows immediately after Passover, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As a matter of fact, the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the day after Passover and lasts for seven days. The two are so closely associated today that they have basically melded into a single holiday just called Passover, and uh, it's today celebrated as an eight-day holiday, just called Passover. But actually, there are two separate observances. There's the observance of Passover on one day, and then the following day, the observance of the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, which goes for the next seven days. Well, what does this all mean? It can be kind of confusing. Well, that's what we want to talk about in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Well, we are looking at the uh, the seven feasts of the Lord uh, right now in our series, and uh, those seven appointed times that God gave to his people to meet with him uh, at a certain time for a certain reason, at a certain place even, uh, at the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, at least for most of them, for many of them. Uh, and so last week we talked about the first one uh, in the year for the uh, Jewish year, and that was Passover. And uh, today uh, we're going to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comes right after. But before we march forward to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I wanted to uh, just take a minute to read this article because I found it pretty fascinating. Um, we mentioned when we talk about Passover that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that the sacrificial part of Passover ended because the only place you were supposed to sacrifice the Paschal lamb, the Pesach lamb, I don't know how you pronounce it exactly, but uh, was at, at the temple, in the temple. So when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, there's no longer the temple where you can go and sacrifice your lamb. So that, that sacrificial system of Passover had to end at that point. And it has been ended since then, since 70 AD. This article is um, 
from uh, April 22nd, 2020. So it's about a year and a half old. Um, and I don't have anything new to report, but this is interesting. I'm sure it's continuing in the same vein. So it says, in recent years, there has been a restart of the Paschal lamb sacrifices in Israel four days before Passover each year. Tel Aviv-based I-24 News reported on April 14, 2020, how growing numbers of Israeli families are again publicly sacrificing the Passover lamb in Hebrew called the Korban Pesach. Uh, they are doing this with great celebration. It was an amazing sight for me to behold. A report from Breaking News Israel on April 7, 2020, states that Israeli PM Netanyahu, based on a former request sent to his government from the Temple Mount Foundation, is actually considering granting permission to permit the Korban's Pesach sacrifice to take place on the ancient, ancient Temple Mount for the first time in 2,000 years. Now, that's a problem because on that mount is a, <laughs> a mosque. Yeah. Remember that this is the Passover lamb that the Jews were commanded to sacrifice while in Egypt in preparation for their deliverance from the plague of the death of the firstborn. In this official letter of request to the Israeli government, the Sanhedrin stated, so the Sanhedrin has now back in Jerusalem. Uh, the Sanhedrin stated, <clears throat> God forbid we should allow the coronavirus to strike his children without rising up to bring about the solution given in the Torah for epidemics, which involves you know, sacrifices, things like that. The Jewish Sanhedrin has been functioning in Israel for the last number of years and plans to bring an already constructed altar to the Temple Mount for the, for the lamb sacrifice to eventually be made there. Normally, the temple is considered necessary for sacrifices to occur. The temple's construction would first require a sacrifice of a red heifer on the Mount of Olives to purify the site. Talked about how there are, there is, for the last few years, an effort to breed this perfect red heifer, which has to be a female. And when they say red, it means it can't even have three hairs that are not red. That's how perfect it has to be. But they're trying to breed that red heifer so they can uh, cleanse the Temple Mount to have these kinds of sacrifices start again on that spot. Jewish law states that the Passover lamb sacrifice, if done on the Temple Mount, can be offered without the temple as long as it is done on a biblically constructed altar. The Temple Institute already has a biblically constructed altar waiting in Shiloh. It can be transported to the Mount to the Temple Mount when needed. The report continues to state the Sanhedrin emphasized that the plan to bring the altar to the Temple Mount was entirely consistent with President Trump's recently released deal of the century, which recognized Israel's full sovereignty over the site. Normally, a request for an offering to be made on the Temple Mount is rejected out of hand by the Israeli government. But this year is different. The request is being seriously considered. Many leading rabbis consider that this sacrifice is essential to Israel's survival in view of, recent, of the recent coronavirus outbreak. Biblically, the Passover lamb is a type or picture of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist announced concerning Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see in the writings of the prophets, such as Ezekiel, 
that Jesus will reinstitute temple sacrifice after his return to the earth as a memorial to his once-for-all sacrifice of atonement on Calvary's cross. The revival of the Passover sacrifice in Israel is prophetically significant. Bible prophecy indicates that a third temple is to be rebuilt in Israel just before or during the seven-year tribulation period. We know that sacrifices there will again occur, and after Jesus' return in Jerusalem at his second coming, the Millennial Temple will be constructed. Recent events in Israel, much inspired by the coronavirus outbreak, signal the fulfillment of latter days Bible prophecy. So, isn't that interesting? So, yeah, I don't know what's happened in the last year and a half since that, uh, but I'm sure things are still moving forward in that direction because these people in Israel are really committed to starting the sacrifices again on the Temple Mount. So, um, well, that is the question. That is the question, and I don't know what the answer to that is because uh, the Muslim world is not going to just let that happen. So, there are some people who say that. <laughs> so, some people who who study end time prophecy who say that that will be one of the one of the things that the Antichrist does. When he comes to power, and one of the things that see first, he'll be recognized as a man of peace, mm-hmm. and somehow he will negotiate some type of treaty between the Muslims and the Jews yeah. in Israel to allow this to happen, and he'll be seen as some great world leader who brings this the settlement. That this is one of this is one of the things that he will do that make him appealing to the world. So. Keep your eye on Jerusalem. That's where it all is going to be happening, so, <laughs> biblically and otherwise. So, Okay, so let's switch gears now, and let's look at um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's the second of the seven Feasts of the Lord. Uh, it immediately follows Passover. So remember, Passover is the first on the calendar of the uh, Jewish religion, uh, it is in the first month of the year, which they call Nisan, uh, the 14th of Nisan, which was, that was the name of it uh, back then. It happens in today, March, April time frame. And uh, Passover is all about redemption. It's all about the blood of the lamb. So that's on the 14th day of Nisan. On the 15th day of Nisan, the very next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. And it's a seven-day uh, observance which goes from the 15th to the 21st. We talked about the last couple of weeks how important the number seven is and God's kind of plan and in, in, in the Bible and, and the things that he instituted. So we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which goes for seven days. And the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread is about sanctification. So Passover, redemption, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread is sanctification. And sanctification is a fancy word to say trying to become more like God, trying to live our lives more like in obedience to God in the way that God would want us to live. Uh, to quote Zola Levitt, and we're going to see another one of his videos a little bit, uh, he says that uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is an annual reminder of our, obli- of our obligation to be holy an annual reminder of our obligation to be holy. And so it's a it's seven days, and so it's a de- demonstration 
of holy living for seven days. It's like, can you just be holy for seven days? <laughs> so to, to, today, um, the, the two, and even back in Jesus' day, but they're a little bit different. Today, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread have been kind of melded together. And so when someone of the Jewish faith today would say, you know, I'm celebrating Passover, they're really talking about that whole eight-day period of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They just, they just kind of combine them as one. Uh, and they did the same thing in Jesus' day, but they called it just the opposite. So in Jesus' day, or in the Bible, you often read about the feast or unleavened, the feast of unleavened bread or, or the, the meal of unleavened bread or whatever. And they are talking about the same thing, but just describing it differently. They also combined Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but whereas today they call it all Passover, back then they just grouped it all as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So a lot of times you won't see the word Passover necessarily. You'll see the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but usually that means both together. They're talking about both things. It's an eight-day an eight uh, celebration and commemoration. Right. Yeah. You mentioned sanctification. Now, if I'm getting ahead of you, tell me. You'll go ahead. You know, for the Christian, we had we've been imputed with righteousness when we believed. You know, that's been put on us. So we're righteous in God's eyes. But sanctification is us making our lives coincide with that. Yes. And that's as we let the Holy Spirit build the fruit in us, the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, I think in a way to look at sanctification is that trying to overcome our humanity <laughs> with the way we should live as Christians, you know, letting the Holy Spirit direct our lives and not our human nature direct our lives. So, uh, so what's it all about? Well, let's look and uh, let's turn to Leviticus if you can uh, get there, and uh, we're going to look at Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is the only chapter in the Bible which all seven of these feasts are talked about. So uh, all the seven are, are here in Leviticus 23, where, where God is giving his people directions on what these uh, feasts and observances should be about. So if you look at 23, um, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So he talks about the Sabbath there, which of course this happens every week. But then he goes into the seven appointed times, seven feasts. Passover and unleavened bread, he talks about kind of together, which makes sense just because of what we just talked about. So verse four says, these are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So that's 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 it. That's the, the, the first part of where God is giving this, um, this feast and this appointed time to his people, the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. 
So in and of itself, just in the just in the, the title of this holiday, the celebration, is the core and the key of it, unleavened bread, right? The Feast of Unleavened. It's all about the bread. It's all about unleavened bread. And what does it say you have to do with unleavened bread in that passage right there? Eat it for seven days. And really it's eight days because you're supposed to eat them. That's supposed to be also Passover. So for eight days, you cannot eat any bread that is not unleavened. Now, have any of you eaten matzah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Do you put stuff on it to make it good? Because I, <laughs> I just bought two boxes of it. You did? And I've got it in the car. Use it as a snack or something? Yeah. I guess it's healthy for you, but I'd rather have corn chips. <laughs> I'd rather have crackers. I'd rather have saltines. But, yeah, it's all about unleavened bread. So why is this so important? Well, you know, there's a symbolic importance, and then there's, like, a real-life importance. So let's talk about the symbolic importance first. Unleavened bread has no yeast. It has no leaven. And in the Bible, so often, yeast leaven is a symbol for sin. Exactly. It's a symbol for sin. And so unleavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is like an object lesson for God's people. It means just like this bread that you're partaking of is without leaven, so your lives should be without sin. So for seven days or eight days, you're eating this unleavened bread, no yeast, representing no sin, and this is all about sanctification and trying to live the way God wants us to live, and so it's just, as we ingest it, it's a, you know, you get hungry for dinner or snack or lunch or whatever, you got to grab the unleavened bread, the bread without yeast, and so it's a constant reminder for you for these seven or eight days uh, that your life should be also without sin. I mean, that's the goal. The Ten Commandments, you know, don't do any of those things. And so it's important as an object lesson for for people. Some people learn by reading. Some people learn by doing. And this is a great way. It's just God saying, I want to help you remember to live this kind of life because for these eight days you're eating unleavened bread. Your life should also be without leaven, the leaven of sin. So that's the symbolic part of the Feast of of Unleavened Bread and the unleavened bread itself. The, uh, the historical part of it is, of course, goes back to the original Passover, right, with Moses. And why was the, unleavened, why was the bread unleavened then? Time. They had to be ready to leave quickly. This was going to happen fast. It didn't, ha- there's a difference between something happening fast and something happening quickly, I guess I'd be better to say quickly. Something that happens fast happens like, you know, r- right away. Uh, something that happens quickly happens, you know, like that. So the 400 years they were in slavery in Egypt, that wasn't fast. But when they had Passover and they were going to be released from slavery by Pharaoh, that happened quickly. So um, they didn't have time. God said, you're not going to have time for the yeast to rise. When this happens, you got to be ready to go. And so don't put 
yeast in your bread, have bread without yeast, and have it in your bowls and be ready to go because you're not going to have time. You're going to have to get going and get out of here. And so they had to be ready to depart Egypt quickly, suddenly. And uh, today in, uh, well, I guess wherever you bake, whoever makes unleavened bread, but especially in, uh, in, in Israel, uh, you ha- you, it's, a, it's a rule, I guess a kosher rule, that you have to be able to make unleavened bread in 18 minutes or less. That's from start to finish. Starting with the dough, finishing with the finished piece of baked bread, 18 minutes. And if you can't do it in 18 minutes, you have to throw it away. So, you know, fast, quickly. And what I like, another thing, I think as a Christian, the symbolism for us is that, you know, unleavened bread so you can be ready to go suddenly and quickly. For us, a reminder that because we are seen as being without sin through the sanctification and the justification of Christ and his forgiveness, that we are in God's sight without sin. And so when the rapture comes, we're going to be ready to go quickly. We don't have time for the yeast to rise. When, when he comes and calls us up, we're going to depart here quickly and fast too. Because why? Because we don't have the leaven of sin in our lives through the mercy of Christ, right? So that's cool for us. So the other thing is that unleavened bread is also known as the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction. Why? Because it reminds them of the affliction they suffered as slaves in Egypt. What kind of affliction? Well, you know, uh, matzah bread is hard. It's, you know, it's hard. It's not soft. It's not like soft bakery yeasty rolls that I love. But, you know, (laughs) it's hard. And so this reminder of their hard life that they lived during slavery. It has stripes on it, reminding them of being under the whip of the Egyptian taskmasters. It has holes in it to remind them of their flesh bleeding and breaking as they tried to make bricks without straw and so forth. So it's this, it's a reminder of the affliction that they suffered uh, in Egypt and how wonderful God was to rescue them from that. And this is a very serious thing. As a matter of fact, let's take a look real quick. Turn to Exodus. We're going to look at a few verses in Exodus that... Um, kind of re- reinforce what we're talking about here in terms of how this was something that you couldn't just casually ignore. This was a very important, important thing um, for people. So look at Exodus chapter 12. Uh, let's go with verse um, 14, 12:14. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come you shall celebrate. It is a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. So uh, on, on the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day, do not work on all of these days, uh, do not work at all on these days, except to prepare food. You could prepare food for everybody to eat. That is all you may do. So here he's saying, if you participate, if you partake of 
any uh, leavened bread, anything with yeast, you're cut off. You're excommunicated from the community of faith uh, of the Jewish people. So that's a serious thing. Now let's go over to 13, uh, chapter 13. Let's look at verse 7. I think it is 13. 13, 6, actually. It says, For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you. So not only are you not supposed to eat it, you're not even supposed to have it anywhere where it can be seen by you. Uh, Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. So it's not only... Or you're not supposed to have it in your house. You're not supposed to have it anywhere in the whole nation. Nothing with yeast for those seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, let's go to chapter um, 23. Chapter 23. Hmm? Exodus. Stay in Exodus. Just, yeah, stay in Exodus. 23. Uh, let's start with verse... Um, Let's see. Hold on. Where I want? Is it Exodus? Exodus 13. Ex, 20, oh, 15. Exodus 15. There we go. Uh, celebr- 15, 23. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, which that was, this is the same month, they just changed the name of it. For in that month you came out of Egypt. No one. Uh, so there again, we're talking. And we got another time that God is talking about you can't have any yeast uh, anywhere. So let's look one more time. Thirty-four, uh, chapter thirty-four. Go to chapter thirty-four, eighteen. Thirty-four, eighteen. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. So yet another time he's saying, you know, don't have the yeast. Let's see if I can find one more. Uh, yeah, okay, turn over to Deuteronomy, which is right after um, Numbers. Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. And verse, um, let's see here. Let's say verse 3, 16.3, Deuteronomy. Do not, eat it with, uh, do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. So this is a serious thing. You're not only not supposed to have it in your possession, in your house, you're not even supposed to have it, you're not even supposed to be able to see it, and you're not even supposed to have it anywhere within your whole country. So it's, uh, it's important. So let's, there's another place where God talks about, in a little bit more detail, the uh, Feast of uh, unleavened bread. So turn in to Numbers, which is just before Deuteronomy, and go to Numbers uh, 28, chapter 28, and uh, let's see, verse, let's go with verse, uh, 
I will just start with verse 16. How about that? 28.16 of, of uh, Numbers. Numbers 28.16. On the 14th day of the first month of the, Lord, on the, of, the, of the Lord's Passover is to be held. On the 15th day of this month, there is to be a festival. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Present to the Lord an offering made by fire, a burnt offering of two young bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old all without defect. With each bull, prepare a grain offering of three-tenths of an fine flour mixed with oil, uh, with the ram two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. Prepare these in addition to the regular morning burnt offering. In this way, prepare the food of the offering made by fire every day for seven days as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It is to be prepared in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So that is a little bit more specific, isn't it? With a little bit more details about how they were to commemorate this uh, feast of unleavened bread. And there's a lot of sacrifices going on, isn't there? So... Basically, this is the way that it was that this observance was held during Jesus' day. So, um, on day one, there was a sacred assembly, and no regular work could be done. The only work you could do was preparing the meal. So, this is in essence a, a special Sabbath day, because what happens? What makes the Sabbath special? No work, right? And you hold a sacred assembly. So whatever day of the week this this happens, the 15th of Nisan, you hold a sacred assembly and do no work. So it's a special uh, Sabbath, as it were. And then on day seven, the last day of the festival, the the feast, you do the same thing. So it's yet another special Sabbath, no work, and hold a sacred assembly. Now, for all seven days, you have sacrifices that need to be made. So what were they? Well, and they're and they're burnt offerings, which means they're they're basically uh, burnt up when fire. So, but what it said there, and what were they? Well, if you can afford it, you bring every day two young bulls with a grain offering, a ram with a grain offering, seven male lambs, one year old without defect, with a grain offering, and a male goat as a sin offering. So that's a lot. You have you have to be kind of wealthy, right, to do that every single day. And then and then the regular you had to still do your regular burnt offering in the morning with a drink offering. The drink offering is wine basically that was poured out uh, on the altar. And the regular burnt offering could be either another young bull or another ram or another goat, one year old, male, no defect. Or if you couldn't afford that, you could bring turtle doves or pigeons. Uh, or if you couldn't even afford that, you could just bring a grain offering. And the same thing also held true of the those offerings that we talked about, the special offerings each day, the uh, two bulls, the ram, the seven male lambs, the one goat. If you couldn't afford that, you could substitute out the two turtle doves. Or if you couldn't afford that, you could substitute out just the grain offering itself. Uh, because you know God didn't want to impose hardship on his people to celebrate this. You were to bring what you could afford to bring, what you were able to bring. But if you could bring that, you should bring that, because that was 
the goal. That was what you that was what you were supposed to do if you could afford it. Dennis, question: uh, Did the nation uh, have sacrifices like this in uh, on behalf of all the people? These were in these were personal sacrifices that you you made for, you might be able to make on behalf of your family. Yeah, so I don't know that any almost anyone could. Right. It would be a lot, wouldn't it? So yeah. I was wondering, is there some uh, sacrifices going on that were on behalf of the common, ordinary person? No, you had to bring, if you, if you couldn't afford that, you could substitute two turtle doves or two pigeons. Or if you couldn't afford that, you could just bring your grain offering. But you had each, each person, each family had to bring an offering of some kind. There was not like the priest making an offering like on the Day of Atonement for the nation, no. Each, this was up to you individually to make the sacrifice for yourself, or you like, like the head of the family be able to make it for the whole family. But but we say you know well how, it would be been hard for people to afford this, and I, I'm I'm sure it would have been. But my question is kind of a, a, a going the opposite way. How many people do you think could have afforded it, but brought the lesser? In other words, I got the rams and the bulls but i'm just gonna bring the turtle doves <laughs> you know or 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 you might even be able to say well i can't do all the two young bulls the ram the seven male lambs the male goat but i can do just the two young bulls you know or whatever but how many people actually did have those livestock but cheated god how many people cheated god because they didn't really want to give up all that livestock and all that wealth as part of the sacrificial system during i bet it was a bunch I bet it was a bunch. Yes, Ruth. I'll tell you a really quick story. It doesn't have to do with offerings, but that offering, but a modern day one, well, my grandfather that I came home, he was asked, because we still give our tithes and our offerings, um, he was asked to contribute to the Christian school back, back then in the um, early 1900s. And he was asked for $200 and he said he couldn't afford it. And so, and you're going to laugh, but anyway, I, this is a special story for me. Um, so, in the next week or so, he suffered 200 he, he was a farmer, he suffered $200 in losses in the pigs that he had. Oh my goodness. And so, he said, I guess the Lord is speaking to me. So he went right over to the church to give them $200 to help establish a Christian school. Amen. <laughs> and then two of his sons taught there, and all of the kids, the rest of the kids went there. The, so you know, it was an investment in his people, but he thought he couldn't afford it. Exactly right. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the thing is that, you know, you're, you're not fooling God. I mean, you know, God, no, God knows, so. But I thought that was... That instead of defining more, he took that. Right. Okay. Uh, and Malachi, can we, go ahead. It says, "Would you rob God?" Yeah. Right. Will you rob God? Exactly. It goes right to this. Exactly. I, I couldn't hear you, Judge. In Malachi, that's where he says, "You, you're robbing God." He was talking about. You're not giving your full sacrifice that you should give. Yeah. We can play ready. that now if you want. Yeah. So this is. Ready. I just. No, no, this is good because it's a good, good point to it. So we're going to talk a little bit about how um, the feast of unleavened bread, you know, obviously centers around the unleavened bread, and this talks about 
what they do uh, in the homes of the Jewish people today to find, to search out, and to rid their homes of unleavened bread as part of the cell. Because obviously, you got you during the rest of the year you have yeast, but during you have to get rid of it. So what do you do? So here, this talk about that. Honey cake is kosher for Passover. Anyway, we went to a friend. We have uh, many rabbinical friends in Israel. We went to uh, Rabbi Noah, who tells us about the leaven ceremonies, how they search out the leaven in the house. A very important uh, aspect of Passover is, of course, the prohibition not only of eating, but of seeing or having in one's possession any leaven. Uh, throughout the seven days of Passover. So on the eve of Passover, in other words, the night before the night of Passover, we must search assiduously for the leaven throughout the house. It's a very beautiful custom um, to distribute a few pieces of leaven wrapped in tin foil so that they won't spread abroad because after all, we don't want the house to be uh, polluted with leaven again. The father will have hidden those pieces of leaven wrapped in tin foil, and the children, in the course of searching the leaven, will find them. The search is performed at night uh, with candlelight, because the light of a candle, uh, when a candle is lit, when all around is darkness, uh, enables one to see much better, might seem ironic, than in daylight or even than with an electric light. And therefore, when we find the crumbs, we sweep them up with a little feather and uh, scoop them up and then gather them together, together with the leaven wrapped up in tin foil that we know the children will have found. And then, of course, the next day, we will burn them. All bread and leaven that is in my possession that I have or have not seen, that I have or have not destroyed, shall be nullified and shall be public like the dust of the earth. May it be your will, O God, my Lord and Lord of my fathers, that just as I have removed all leaven from my house and property, so may you destroy all evil forces and remove the spirit of wickedness from your world. No matter how thoroughly we have looked inside ourselves for the evil, evil inclination, to expurgate it, to destroy it, Man must know that no matter how hard he tries, he will continue always on some level to transgress. The evil inclination is so pervasive that ultimately we believe that it is only with the help of God that we can defeat it. Man, left to his own devices, is incapable of destroying the evil inclination only with God's help. So let's take a minute now and talk about where is Jesus you know, when you think about in the, leaven, the Feast of burned. the Unleavened Bread. Where is Jesus in the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, first of all, he's in the Unleavened Bread itself, right? If you remember what the matzah looks like, it is striped, right? It has stripes on it where, the, where it's cooked and it's kind of burned on those striped areas. You know, Jesus says, I mean, in the Bible it says, by his stripes, we are healed. Uh, the matzah has holes in it, right? 
uh, if you look at it closely. And they put those holes in there so that it won't, it, when they bake it, it won't bubble up. It's why they put those holes in there. But it says in the Bible that he was pierced for our transgressions. And then, of course, it doesn't have any leaven. Jesus did not have sin. He was sinless. And remember uh, what Jesus said in, uh, at the Last Supper. He said, this is my body. What was he giving them? He was giving them unleavened bread. This is my body. So the unleavened bread itself represents Jesus' body. Uh, also, this search, isn't this interesting? This search for sin uh, in their houses. Uh, it's a reminder for us that you know our bodies are the temple of God, right? The house of God. And so as they search homes for leavened bread, we're to search our lives for sin. And also, isn't it interesting that they used a candle in a dark room to illuminate the leaven. Well, Jesus is the light of the world, isn't he? He's the light in the darkness of a world of sin. And it's his light, Christ's light, that illuminates and exposes sin, isn't it? And then the leaven, and this I find so interesting, the leaven is taken outside and burned in a fire, thrown into the fire. And that reminds me that if you have sin in your life without forgiveness through Christ and salvation in him, you will ultimately be thrown into the fire, won't you? I'm going to read you, if you want to turn there, you can, Revelation uh, 20, uh, 11, 2011. It says, then, this is uh, John talking about his vision. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Uh, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of what? Fire. Why? Because they were sinful. And so the sin, the leaven, is thrown into fire, just like unbelievers will be someday. And then, of course, uh, Sin uh, is uh, destructive, right? It cuts you, uh, it, it, it puts a barrier between you and God. It cuts you all. Like if you had the, the leaven in your home or partook of it, you were cut off, right? Sin cuts us off from the Lord. Uh, and ultimately it condemns you. So, and no matter how hard we try, right? We can't live sinless lives. We, it's impossible what did he say? This is a Jewish rabbi saying, it's impossible. Everyone recognizes that. And what he said was so amazing. We can only defeat sin in our lives with God's help. Well, he's talking about, and, and, and so what, what accommodation does God make for us to allow us to have our sins forgiven? The accommodation he makes for us is a sacrifice. Now, he's talking about God giving them the accommodation of the sacrifice of a lamb or whatever they do now, you know, uh, 
But that's an imperfect sacrifice, right? We know as Christians that God has given us a perfect sacrifice. And so he accommodates us to be able to be without sin through the sacrifice of Christ uh, for us. Um, uh, Paul wrote about this. If you have a second, and we have just, just enough time. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians. And this is Paul talking about this basically same concept. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, it says, this is Paul writing, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast. Okay, let's keep the festival. What festival are we talking about there? It's about the festival of unleavened bread. Let's keep the feast of unleavened bread, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, that yeast that can never be really expunged from our lives, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth, the bread without yeast is our lives with Christ and his forgiveness and salvation. So... That is uh, where Christ is found in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I wanted to just finish off today by reading you this little um, firsthand uh, story of a gentleman who is a um, Jewish believer. Uh, and he talks about an experience that he had, which I thought was so kind of funny and kind of interesting, but also shows you how important this is taken uh, in, even today in Israel. So this, he writes this, he says, Again, my mind goes back to Passover in Israel. It was the eighth day of the Passover season, which means the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there was no real food in the house. My friend and I were tired of matzah, salads, and scrambled eggs. Since the grocery would not be selling bread until the following day, we called a bus to downtown Jerusalem, hoping to fare better. Imagine our disappointment when we discovered that our favorite pizza shop was still closed for Passover. Our hopes rose as we saw an open hamburger cafe, and they were dashed, but they were dashed as we received our hamburgers on steamed matzah. <laughs> Not to be defeated, my friend suggested picking up a loaf of bread at the Arab market. So what would it hurt? Only a few hours, and it would be sundown anyway. He purchased two long loaves of bread, and they were placed in a cellophane shopping bag with the ends sticking out. On our way home, we cut through a grassy park to enjoy the scenery. As we passed a group of university students studying on the lawn, they became excited and began to shout at us in Hebrew. Innocently, we presumed that they were not that we were not allowed to walk on the grass and hurried on our way. When we caught the bus, it was crowded, and my friend and I were forced to sit in separate seats. Suddenly, I noticed that all the passengers were scowling at my friend and eyeing the bag of bread. This fact was obvious to my friend as well, for his face was flushed and he was sunken down in his seat. Fortunately, the bus was not stopping at an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, or our lives would surely have been endangered. The presence of any leaven during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is an absolute outrage. Even the mere sight of it is a very serious matter. So a timely lesson on sin is found in Paul's admonition that we just read. Just as is done in the purging ceremony, we need to thoroughly sweep out our lives. It is not sufficient to simply throw out the conspicuous loaves on the table 
and hide the favorite loaf of rye in the cupboard or allow the unnoticed crumbs to remain under the stove. We need to take the candle of God's word and search our lives. Every corner, every crack, and every window sill must be scrutinized in its light. The task is not complete until every speck of leaven is purged. Why? Paul gives this pressing motivation. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So that's unleavened bread. Next week, first fruits, which is also very interesting. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.